Welcome. You're listening to the Sanctuary Podcast with Tully and Chivijan. Be sure to follow us on our social media channels. You can find the Sanctuary Jupiter on all major social media platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. This is part four in a series that I've entitled Misled. We've been looking at verses and passages in the Bible that have historically been understood one way, uh, and as a result of being understood in that way, uh, many of us have been misled to believe wrong things about God and about how God relates to us. And so this morning, I want to look at another passage that is often misunderstood, Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to skip down and read verses 12 through 14. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So I started this series a few weeks ago by saying that the Bible can do some serious damage if it is read or understood wrongly. I mean, for thousands of years, people have used the Bible to promote wrong ideas about who God is and how God relates to us. I was taught growing up that the Bible was basically an instruction manual from God on how to live right. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that one of the ways this was taught to me was through an acrostic, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. And so I grew up believing that that's what the Bible was, that the Bible was an instruction manual from God on how to live right, how to do the right thing. So I just assumed that God was primarily interested in me being good, in me doing the right thing, in me flying straight and keeping the rules. That's what I thought this whole thing was about. I was told, as early as I can remember, I was told that God loved me. But the focus after that was always on what I should and shouldn't do, leading me to believe that my behavior determines how God feels about me. And so the way God feels about me, the way God feels about us is ultimately determined by how we behave and what we do. Um, But reading the Bible like that leads us to view God as this eternal bookkeeper who's making a list and checking it twice so he can find out who's naughty and nice. Um, I mean, lots of people use the Bible to scare others into believing that if you don't do the right things or if you persist in doing the wrong things, then God will wash his hands of you. I grew up believing that. 
Um, I mean, I talk to people every week. Every week I talk to people from all over the world who struggle with believing that anybody, especially God, could love them because they've done too many bad, destructive, and hurtful things. I get letters every week. I want to read a couple of short ones to you to illustrate this point. This woman wrote a while back, I was working full-time at a recovery place. I cheated on my husband and wasn't caught, but I confessed it. I have since been cast out by everyone. I am hopeless, and I don't know what to do. I've lost my husband, my job, my friends, everything. And most days, I feel like I have lost God, too. I want to believe that he loves me and hasn't given up on me, but it sure feels like he has. I need help. I need hope. I don't know where to turn. After reading your story, I felt like you'd be able to understand what I'm going through without judging me. Another person wrote, I hear you talking about God's unconditional love, but you don't know me. If you did, you'd understand that God couldn't possibly love me. I've screwed up too many times in the same way. I actually understand why people walk away from me. I also understand why God has walked away from me. I'm far too guilty and too ugly to love. I talk to people all the time that can't control their bad habits, people that can't stop certain behaviors even though they want to, people that feel stuck in a gutter of guilt and shame. And somewhere along the way, they've been told that if they truly had a relationship with God, they would be getting better. They wouldn't keep screwing up in the same way. And the very fact that they are screwing up in the same way, that they don't seem to be getting better, is proof that they don't have a relationship with God. They cause people to believe that, um, that God loves them conditionally rather than unconditionally. They, they cause people that God loves to doubt whether God loves them. And I don't think there's anything worse than that. I don't think there's anything worse than causing someone that Jesus died for to question whether Jesus died for them. And this happens all the time, all the time. There are some preachers out there who seem to delight in creating doubt in hearts and minds of people who are struggling uh, as to whether or not God loves them, whether or not God is done with them because they keep screwing up in the same way. And the people who do this kind of thing use verses like Hebrews twelve fourteen to make their point. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This is a verse that has been used time and time and time again to scare people into believing that if they're not getting better, if they're not fixing their problems, if they're not cheering up, if they're not improving and progressing, then that's proof that they don't belong to God or that God doesn't love them. This verse is used all the time in that way. It's damaging. It's misleading. Let me read you a couple of things I've read recently by people explaining this verse so you can see I'm not making this stuff up. One person put it this way. The declaration, without holiness, no one will see the Lord, 
reflects the culminating point of the broader passage. If our ultimate goal is to see Jesus one day, then our practical daily pursuit must be toward complete purity of thought and lifestyle. Good luck. That's right. Good luck. How's that going for you? In other words, if you want to make sure you're going to heaven then you must pursue complete purity of thought and lifestyle. Another person wrote this, without a lifelong endeavor toward personal holiness, no one will see God. Remember the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and the religious leaders drag her out into the middle of the street and ask Jesus what they should do with this woman who was caught in adultery because the law of Moses says she should be stoned. And Jesus responds by saying, uh, you who are without sin then cast the first stone. And slowly but surely they all dropped their stones and walked away. And then Jesus turns and looks at the woman and he says something. He didn't say, stop sleeping around and then I won't condemn you. It's not what he says. He said, I don't condemn you. Now go stop sleeping around. Okay. Um, order matters. Big time. It's not stop doing what you continually do. And if you're good at it, or if you stop doing it, then I won't condemn you. That's not what he says. The declaration of no condemnation comes first. It's the first thing illustrating the fact that God's love for us and his acceptance of us is not conditioned on what we do or how we behave, which is what a lot of us were taught to think. Um, in early 1662, okay, long time ago, the Puritan Thomas Brooks preached 58 sermons on this one verse. 58 Okay, overkill if I've ever heard of overkill. 58, it seems uh, narcissistically myopic to spend 58 sermons on this one verse. In fact, Thomas Brooks went on to say, if he could only preach one sermon before he died, it would be on this verse. Okay, here are just a few points he made in that series. Just a few. Okay, now you got to rewind the clock to 1662. Preaching was a little bit different back then. Preachers would preach for an hour and a half, two hours at a time. Um, so here are just a few points he made in that series. 16 marks of a holy person, 15 motives of the holy person, 16 counsels toward holiness, six evidences of the reality and power of holiness, 16 provocations to increased holiness, eight means, helps, and directions for progress in holiness, 12 evidences of high degrees of holiness. Okay, this is what I call spiritualized navel-gazing. Uh, an obsession with how we're doing. Are we doing it right? Are we improving? Are we progressing? It's all about me, 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 which is why I say there's a huge difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is all about me and what I need to do for God. Christianity is all about God and what he's done for me. Huge difference, huge difference. 
um, in a sermon that was inspired by one of Thomas Brooks' messages, one contemporary preacher who read through all 58 of those sermons and then decided to do a series on his own, one preacher said this, What does it mean that without holiness no one will see the Lord? This is my simple doctrine from this one verse. There is a personal holiness that comes as a result of diligent effort, diligent striving and pursuit, diligent labor. There is a personal holiness that comes from sincere, diligent, hard labor that is absolutely required in order to spend eternity with God in heaven. That's the doctrine. Simply put, there's a holiness you strive for, and if you don't have it, you're not going to heaven. Um, I'm just going to tell you right now, if, if this is Christianity, I renounce my faith. Okay. Renounce it. Um, I mean, seriously, I'm doomed if that's it eternally screwed. If that's it, if, if my acceptance from God is based on my pursuit or obtaining of personal holiness, I'm screwed. Uh, if that's what this verse means, then we are all in big trouble because none of us, none of us cut it. None of us. Now, let me say this. On the one hand, I do appreciate the fact that these people understand the exactness that God requires. I appreciate that. God does require holiness. He does require the meticulous dotting of I's and crossing of T's. In fact, he requires perfection. Perfection. Years ago, I was asked by an interviewer, in what ways is grace most commonly misunderstood today? And this is what I said. I think the main way is when people confuse grace with cheapened law. Think of Jesus' crushing line in the Sermon on the Mount. You must therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Grace, for many people, is the reduction of God's demands. Because of grace, we think, we just need to try hard to be good. Grace becomes this law-cheapening agent attempting to make the law easier to follow. Be perfect gets cheapened into do your best. So on the one hand, I appreciate that these people don't dumb down what God requires. The problem is, and this is where they go misleadingly wrong, The problem is that they put that responsibility on our shoulders as if we're capable of doing it, as if we're capable of pulling it off. See, when it comes to, when it comes to God, people fall into one of three categories, delusion, despair, or deliverance. So for instance, um, a person who falls under the category of delusion thinks like this, I can do this, I am doing this, and shame on you for not doing this. I'm better than you. Okay, that's the way the Pharisees were, that's the way a lot of religious people are these days. 
Uh, that's th- those are the people who fall under the category of delusion. Then there are others who fall under the category of despair. I can't do this. I'm not doing this. And shame on me for not doing this. I quit. I'm hanging it up. Now, at least those people are honest. The despairing people are at least honest. They look at what God requires. They look at what God demands. And they honestly assess their own hearts and realize I'm not even close to doing this. Not even close. But then there's another group of people that fall under the category of deliverance. And this is their posture. I can't do this. I'm not doing this. But thank God Jesus did it for me. I'm free. Okay, now there's the delusional people who think they're doing it. And they're very self-righteous about that. Very. They think they're better. They think their doctrine's better. They think their lifestyle is better. They think that they in and of themselves are more pleasing to God. That God is happier with them. And then there are the uh, despairing people who just honestly conclude, I'm, I can't do this. If, if this is what Christianity is all about, then I'm, I'm out. Exit stage left. This isn't for me at all. Because I'm not even close to being that good. And they deal with the guilt and the shame of that. And then there are people who've been delivered from both delusion and despair. And they honestly admit, I I can't do this. Are you kidding me? Be perfect as God is perfect? I mean, I can't do this. I'm not doing this. I'll never be able to do this. But thank God Jesus did it for me. I'm free. Thank God that... He doesn't relate to me based on what I do for him, but based on what he does for me. Thank God that our relationship to God is not dependent on what's in our heart for him, but what's in his heart for us. Huge difference between those two things. You see, God doesn't demand effort. I mean, that would be doable. He demands perfection, requires perfection. So no matter how hard we try, we will always fall short of what God requires. God doesn't accept you based on your hard work or your progress or the fact that you're better today than you were five years ago. That's not the way God accepts us. He accepts us based solely on Jesus's perfection, period. Um, the requirements of this verse, Hebrews uh, 12, 13, or 14, uh, this requirement of holiness is intended to expose our unholiness before God. No one who isn't holy won't see, will see God. No one. Well, that, that, that demand, that requirement is intended to expose our unholiness because only then will we bank everything on the one who was holy for us. Only then. Only when we are flat on our back and we've run out of our own steam and we realize that we can't gain God's favor and God's love and God's acceptance by what we do or by what we stay away from, only then will we fully come to understand the grace that is ours and the freedom that Jesus paid so dearly to deliver to us. Um, See, most people think that those who talk a lot about grace, like me, have a very low view of God's requirements. 
And that those with a high view of what God demands are the legalistic people. But it's actually the opposite. Um, it's, It's a low view of God's demands that produces legalism because a low view causes us to conclude that we can do it. When be perfect gets dumbed down to just try hard, well, that we can do. And then we delude ourselves into think that we are doing it, and we become very self-righteous and legalistic about it. And then we start imposing that on everybody around us. Like, come on. I mean, get with it. Clean up your act. Do more. Try harder. Get better. Climb higher. Um, It causes us to conclude that we can do it, that the bar is low enough for us to jump over. A low view of God's demands makes us think that the standards are attainable, the goals are reachable, that the demands are doable. But they're not. They're impossible for people like you and me. Impossible. C.S. Lewis once wrote very aptly, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. No one. Like, I mean, you think you're a pretty good person? Try perfection for an hour. Because that's what God requires. That's what he demands. So just try it. Perfection. Not just in external behavior, but perfection in your motives. Perfection in your thoughts. Perfection in your feelings. Perfection on the inside of you. Not just perfection on the outside of you. Try that for five minutes. And you will quickly come to the sobering realization that you don't meet the standard. You can't do it. So it's only when we see that God's law is inflexible will we see that God's grace is indispensable. Indispensable. A high view of what God requires reminds us that God accepts us because of Jesus' holiness, not ours. Okay? So, like I said, on the one hand, all of that stuff that I read to you from other preachers and people who've taught on this passage, on the one hand, I appreciate the fact that they hold high what God demands. They hold high what God requires. They hold high what God expects. The problem is that they then put that responsibility on our shoulders And the only conclusion you can come to is either, I'm doing it, delusional, or I'm not, I can't, I'm out, despair. Unless you find yourself in the third category of going, okay, I mean, I'm clearly not pulling this off. If you think you are, ask your children, ask your spouse, ask your boyfriend, ask your girlfriend. Hell, ask the person sitting next to you, okay? I mean, ask anybody. Uh, I'm not pulling this off. I can't pull this off. I'm not going to pull this off. No matter how hard I try, I'll never be able to pull this off. But thank God Jesus pulled it off for me. And I'm free. I'm free. Um, So a high view of God requires, what God requires reminds us that God accepts us because of Jesus' holiness, not ours. God doesn't ease his requirements. He doesn't sweep that under the rug. That was what the religious teachers thought Jesus was doing. That he was sweeping God's standards under the rug. That he was sort of, you know, saying, ah, it's okay. A little sin here and a little sin there. It's not a big deal. That's what they charged him with. Jesus turned the tables on these people and said, no, actually, I'm heightening the bar. 
I'm reminding you that God demands more than just your goodness. He demands perfection in thought, word, and deed. Perfection. In fact, he says, be perfect as God himself is perfect. And with that sort of laying down of the law, these guys' eyes were slowly open to the fact that they weren't pulling it off, illustrated by the fact that all of the people who had picked up stones dropped them and walked away. Um, So God doesn't ease his requirements. He fulfills them in his son, who then gives his holiness to us, imputes his holiness to us, clothes us in a straitjacket of his holiness, not ours. So here's the good news. You will never be more holy or less holy than you are right now. You can't be. God relates to you in the same way that he relates to Jesus. Because you are clothed in the work of Jesus. You are, um, you are wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. So with that being said, what, what would Jesus have told the two people whose letters I read? I mean, they were clearly on the receiving end of some misleading messaging they had screwed up, they had made some big mistakes, they had, they had caused some catastrophic damage to themselves and to other people, and as a result, they concluded that God must be done with them, that there's no way, no way God could love them, that God could be delighted in them because of what they had done. So what would Jesus say to those people? Well, we don't, we don't have to guess what he would say. We don't have to speculate what he would say. He tells us what he would say. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, come to me with all of your crap. I got this. Come to me with all of your fear and all of your insecurity and all of your failure. I got this. I got you. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and ruined by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Ever. Someone had convinced these people that catastrophic screw-ups changed the way God felt about them. Nobody came to them with good news. That's what the gospel is. You know, the law demands everything and gives you nothing. The gospel demands nothing and gives you everything. So anytime if you're out there and you hear or see somebody say like the gospel demands a major red flag should go up immediately. The gospel demands nothing and delivers everything. The law, on the other hand, demands everything and delivers nothing. Both are needed. This one humbles us just when we think we're pulling it off, just when we think we're we're doing good and God's impressed. The law's there to remind us that we're a lot worse than we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. But then on the heels of that crushing blow comes the curing word of God that says, 
It is finished. I took care of this problem. I fixed this. You're in forever. Not because of what you do or what you have stayed away from, but because of who I am, because of my great love for you. And someone had convinced these people that their screw-ups changed the way God felt about them. Nobody told them that Jesus was perfect for them. And because of that, they didn't have to be perfect for themselves. Nobody told them that. Nobody gave them good news. You see, real freedom, and listen carefully to this, real freedom happens when the gift of perfection outvolumes the demand for perfection. That's when real freedom happens. When the gift of perfection that God delivers to you outvolumes the demand for perfection, when you're finally free enough to admit that you can't please a perfect God, you'll be free enough to rest in the one who was perfect for you. For you. There's a reason why the word freedom, in Jesus' own words, describes what he came to do. This is liberating. It's burden lifting. It's freeing. I don't have to worry about the way God feels about me. I don't have to worry about whether or not God is happy with me in this moment or pissed off in this moment. I don't have to worry about that stuff. If I did, I'd be worrying all day, every day. Because I'm a total mixed bag, a bundle of contradictions. I believe and I don't believe. I'm good and I'm bad. I'm selfless and I'm selfish. All the time, every day. All the time. We all are if we're honest. So if God's feelings toward us are dependent on our performance, then, I mean, his feelings for us are going to fluctuate every second of the day, and we will live with no assurance and comfort that God is for us. We'll always be wondering, is he for us? Is he against us? Is he with us? Is he not with us? Does he like me? Does he not like me? I've told you before, I've never had a really difficult time believing that God loves me. My parents were amazing at teaching me that from the time I was small. But I've always struggled with believing that God likes me. Like maybe, maybe he's got buyer's remorse when it comes to his relationship with me. Like, you know, if I would have known, <laughs> I would have probably sent this one back. Um, or I, I wouldn't have adopted him if I would have only known. Uh, but the truth of the matter is God's feelings toward us are not dependent on our fluctuating dysfunction, thankfully. Jesus fulfilled all of God's perfect conditions so that our relationship to God could be perfectly unconditional. And now we only have one job to do. One. You've heard me say it. Enjoy the gift. That's it. That's it. If you want me to describe for you, well, what is, what is the Christian life really? I don't need to write a book about that stuff. I don't even need to preach an entire sermon about that stuff. I certainly don't need to go buy a book and read about it or listen to sermons about it. I mean, it's very simple. Just enjoy the gift. I've used this illustration many times, but 
I mean, when my kids were small, Christmas, their birthdays, and I would go out and buy them gifts because I know that there's something that they want, something that they've asked for, something that they love. And they open the gift and they enjoy it and play with it. I'm in that way glorified. Okay, I am, I am glorified in their enjoyment of the gift. If they were to look at me and say, this is a great gift, Dad. Now, what can I do to pay you back? I, I would have been offended. I'd be like, you don't have to pay me back for anything, man. I just want you to enjoy the gift. When we simply enjoy the gift that God has given us, he's glorified. Someone once said, how do you glorify a water fountain? You simply come thirsty and drink. That's it. That's all you do. Enjoy the gift. Max Lucado put it this way. If you can imagine enjoying God instead of trying to repay him, then you know what grace is. If you can imagine enjoying God, enjoying him, rather than trying to spend your life paying him back for the gift that he's given you, then you know what grace is. Then you're beginning to grasp the radicality and beauty and liberating power of God's amazing grace. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. If you've enjoyed this message, would you consider giving to the work God is doing through the sanctuary? You can visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give for more information on ways to give. That's thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.